folks, good evening. Uh, this morning we, we, we took a bit of time to look at uh, a powerful message about Jesus uh, from Mark's Gospel. And it was this incredible passage where it talks about how Jesus healed a man who was deaf and a man who was, who was unable to speak. And a, a guy had come forward, a man, and it had tonsillitis, was it? Yeah. And was in a bad situation, unable to speak. And I think it was Pete, you prayed for him? Yeah. Came to me at the end, speaking to me. Isn't that great? So we read about a miracle that Jesus did and God healed my buddy. Isn't that great news? God is a miracle working God. It's awesome. Instantly, just changed the situation, removed the, the intense pain that was there. God is good. How are you feeling, man? Hey, good to hear your voice. I'm going to start by telling you a story. Uh, we're going through Proverbs uh, in Sunday evenings. Let me start by, start by telling you a story. This was a really funny story. It happened a few Christmases ago upon a midnight clear. Uh, and I was in Guernsey. We've got my sister married a guy from Guernsey and we were over there for Christmas. And it, it's really nice. They, they stay in St. Peter's Port, which is a, a kind of steep-sided uh, bay. And it's got housing kind of on the like terraces all the way up the side of this bay and they've they've got a bit of strip of lands and they've got a house with a nice big garden and then a woodland area and at the end of that they've got another little cottage in the woods um, where Goldilocks lives and actually it's, it's Tim my, my sister's husband her sis, his sister lives in that house so anyway we were staying at the the big house with Tim's family and one night we decided we were going to go for a meal at Tim's sister's house. So we went through the, you know, through their lands, round the terrace, steep-sided terrace with drops all down the side, round to the cottage. We had a lovely meal with Tim's sister. And then it was dark by this point, and we, we were going to head back around the terrace. But no, no streetlights. It's just a, a woodland area with a thin path and a steep drop down one side. But Tim, he grew up there. You know, he, he knew this place like the back of his hands. So we, we felt real sense of assurance and confidence that it's all right, we've got the local here, everything's going to be fine. So uh, we, we all said, well, will we go around the long way round the roads uh, where the street lights are on and everything? He said, Tim said, no, no, don't worry, I, I grew up here, I know this place, easy. And he, and he kind of led us off into the darkness down this little path in the woods. And he, literally, this is, I'm not exaggerating, this is how it went. He said, uh, don't worry, I know where I'm going. And that's, literally, that was how it was. Go! And it, he, we heard him. Anyway, he died. We've never seen him again since. No, I'm kidding you on. I'm kidding you on. But he literally fell down a cliff. Incredible. Incredible. Th- things went wrong, and he's not totally together since then, but I still love him. My sister's still married to him. Kidding you on. But he did fall down a cliff, and it. Anyway, the next day we went back, and the, you can see there's the path, and you can see there's flattened grass going off the path to the edge of a drop, and you can see <laughs> like kind of lists of steepness, and it narrows out at the bottom. And he tumbled and tumbled and tumbled through nettles and everything, a good thirty foot, forty foot down. What a guy! Don't worry, I know where I'm going. Off he went. Okay, that's there's a meaning, there's a purpose to that story. Um, Proverbs chapter 14, and we're in the book of Proverbs, we'll probably be in the book of Proverbs over the next year in the evenings, 
Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. It's <laughs> an encouraging verse, isn't it? Thanks, God. Brilliant verse. Thanks. Thanks, Lord. Thank you. So, there's the end of today's message. Thanks for coming. <laughs> Father, we pray that you'd speak to us through the Bible, God. We ask that the profound truth contained within this verse would impact our lives positively tonight. We open our hearts to hear new things, maybe even be challenged in ways we haven't been challenged before. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, my title controversially tonight is Warning, Don't Be True to Yourself. And I hope to explain that as we go on. This is shocking news, folks. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. That's shocking news. That's shocking news. It's put in different ways throughout the Bible. Jesus put it in a different way. He said, broad is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to life. Because something is popular, because something seems right, doesn't mean it is right. I don't know about you, but I've thought things were right when they weren't. I've thought I've believed something that's true, but I've been shocked to find when I see the other side of the story that I was deceived and deceived and deluded. Could this be happening on mass scale on planet Earth? Could this be happening in different aspects of our lives in this room? Absolutely. Why? Because we're not God. We don't know ultimate truth. And there is the possibility of us being deluded. There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. I'm going to be tackling different world views tonight. One of the world, I'm going to start with the naturalistic worldview. The naturalistic worldview, um, I guess, was birthed from a movement which we would call the Enlightenment or modernity, modernity, which is everything to do with science has all the answers. It, it's, the naturalistic worldview would say that you are purely a product of natural happenings, sequence of natural events. Molecules bumping into molecules, random occurrences over a long period of time. You're, there's no design behind it. You're just purely a product of natural, cumulative, random, accidental happenings. And kapow, there you are. The so-called enlightenment or modernity, from which came many great things. Many discoveries in science, many new advancements in medicine. But one of the negative things that came from there was this natu purely naturalistic worldview, which would say everything is purely random. There is no designer. There is no God behind the process. And that this process is birthed us. Science in the Enlightenment was the answer to everything. Everything must be physically provable. This gave many people a dilemma when it came to faith. Naturalistic worldview would say that you're a product of natural selection. It would say that you've just happened to be, and therefore there isn't a God, that everything can be proved. We can even explain where you came from, although they can't. And the, 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 the conclusion of that theory is there is no God. And therefore, you can do what you like. You're not accountable to a God who sets the rules. You're purely your own thing here to survive. A product of a long process so survive you're not accountable there's no lawgiver 
I am my own God. Here's the problem. This theory doesn't account for the fact that you and I have a conscience. Purely this theory by itself, with no inclusion of God, does not give rise to what we would call a conscience. Why is it that in every human being there is a sense of right and wrong? There is also a sense of this is just and that is unjust. Why? I would put that firmly down to the existence of a God. Beyond this, we see this philosophy does not work in a marriage. This philosophy does not work in raising kids. You try and apply a purely naturalistic worldview to your marriage. You can do what you like. There's no lawgiver. We're not accountable. You try and apply that to your marriage. It will ruin your marriage. And it has ruined many marriages. You try and apply that to your kids. Raising your kids. It's not going to raise them with the values that you'd want them to have. Well, why do you want them to have those values? Where do those values come from in the first place? Where does the conscience that confirms those values come from? Where does the sense of justice that you want to instill in your children come from? I tell you what, I really do believe there's a God. You might have been surprised by that since I'm a pastor of a church and we've been singing to him. But just just in case of any doubt, I do believe in God, okay? Another worldview that came on the back of this and almost as a worldly reaction to this modernity, to the Enlightenment, there was a a reaction against that which we would call postmodern. And the postmodern worldview is very much the worldview surrounding us today in our world. It's a reaction against modernity. Here's a definition of postmodernity. Postmodernity recognizes that life cannot be simplified into its component parts. Instead, it celebrates the complexity of life and the fact that you cannot simply describe life, communities or societies in terms of physical here and now. It's a reaction against the scientists who said everything has to be provable. Postmodernity says, no, actually, it's it's not so much about proving everything. It's, It's a desire for experimentation and experiences it's what you feel it's wanting to feel it now and have it now it's in the now and as a result consumerism has become such a thing around us in our world you don't have to you don't have to have everything proved you don't have to tick all the boxes it's all about experience and how you feel about things that's the world we live in reason and logic are not enough proving it is not enough Postmodernity would say that there is no ultimate point or objective. Experience is all that counts. Postmodernity would say that science doesn't have all the answers, which I would agree with. Postmodernity would say truth is relative. What's true for you might be not true for me. Relativism comes in, each to their own. As long as you're sincere about your beliefs. That's all that matters. You hear these things all the time. This is postmodern language. This is postmodern thinking. The result is you live in such a way that says, if it feels good, do it. That's the postmodern world. It's a reaction against the Enlightenment. It's a reaction against modernity. There are elements of truth in both. Both. But there's also great errors in both. Here's the problem I have with postmodernism. It results in a sense of hopelessness. There's no ultimate things you can put your hope in. Everything's shades of grey. I don't know about you, but when I'm 115 and about to pop my clogs, and I'm, and I'm thinking, have I based my life on the right theory? Well, 
I know they believe that and I believe that. Well, what, you know, I'm about to face eternity, folks. I don't want to have based my life on shades of grey. I don't want to have thought, well, I held to one opinion and they held to another opinion. You know what? I need something a bit more firm than that. If I, I mean, eternity is a long time. I want to be certain, rock solid, that you know what? I'm facing eternity with convictions. I'm facing eternity with absolutes. I don't want shades of grey. I want to know what the score is. I want to know I'm ready for that moment. Postmodernity does not prepare you for that. And furthermore, it leaves a void within the human being. It just doesn't satisfy that deep longing within us for ultimate answers. Postmodernism and relativism doesn't give you the, here's where it's at, and, and that leaves you empty. There's always this inner quest that never gets satisfied. Both of these worldviews are prevalent in today's world. And I guess you could sum up these worldviews with the verse we read earlier, Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to man. It seems right. People have come up with these things because to them, it seems right. So let me ask the question, are you living by truth? Are you believing truth? Is your life based on truth or based on a lie? This verse indicates that people will live by things that seem right to them. But does that make it true in itself? The fact is, you could believe something that is a lie. I've done it many times. I've believed that people have had something against me when they've not. And when I engaged them in the conversation, I suddenly realized, huh, what was I worried about? But I got all paranoid about something that wasn't true. Have you ever done that? We would acknowledge we have believed things that aren't true. And it affects our behavior. It gives us paranoia. It gives us fears that are not necessarily accurate. It builds up a whole world in your head that isn't necessarily reflecting of reality. Are you living in truth? Or are you just living in what you seems right to you? Unique to the human species is this desire to have truth to build your life on. You know, you don't see dogs sitting in the backyard pondering and wondering, am I building my life on truth? Woof. Uh, they're not wondering, do I have enough bones stored up for my future? They're not thinking about eternal issues. Yeah, ever since time began, human beings, this has been their quest, truth. There is something within the human psyche that needs to have truth to build their life on. A bit more than just maybe should this one or this one, but something solid, something concrete, something that you can base your life on and grow. There's something within this human psyche that will not be satisfied until that is satisfied. Here's my definition of truth. Things as they are. Not necessarily as we think they are. Truth is things as they are. The real world. The real world. The real, real world. Not the world we think is real, but the real, real world. Now here's the conflict, folks. The conflict is between truth and desire. It's what we want to be true versus what is really true. That's the conflict. For example, the lassie who falls head over heels in love with the guy who is such a layabout, lazy, good-for-nothing so-and-so, who hasn't got a job, who has got no endeavors in life, who has got no agenda for the future, who is making no efforts to make a real man of himself, but the lassie is blinded to this, she's just fallen in love with the guy. 
deluded. Absolutely deluded. And what's happened there is truth and desire are conflicting. Her desire has blinded her to the realities of the situation. She's looking, she's really interested in a guy who's going nowhere. Now, I'm sure if that was my little girl, I'd be saying, no, no, wake up. The guy needs to get a grip. He might be the right guy, but not yet. Don't be deluded. But sometimes desire can blind you to real truth. Sometimes desire can blind you from the realities as they are. The challenge we face is that we are not totally neutral. We're not totally neutral. Okay, let's, let's zoom out again. Let's ask that question we asked at the beginning. Warning, do not be true to yourself. What do I mean by that statement? Well, when we say do not be true to yourself, what self are we talking about? Hmm, Peter, you're a philosopher tonight. I know. I'm enjoying it. What, tru- what, what, what self are we talking about? Hmm. The Bible says you have three parts to you. The First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless, the Bible says. You have a spirit, you have a soul and you have a body. So what self are you talking about? If you're being true to yourself, in two senses, that's dangerous. But in one sense, it's safe. If you've been true to yourself, if you're talking about your body here, be true to your physical desires and impulses. There's a way that seems right to man, but its end will lead to death. People who just kind of, they're being true to self means being true to their physical, natural, physical impulses. That's dangerous. There were some psychiatrists uh, who, whose approach to treating people with sexual addictions, their approach was this. All oh, right, okay, you've got all these sexual tensions and you've got all these se- sexual feelings and physical impulses and, and like animal instinct. Hey, you know what? You've got to watch pornography. Satisfy that instinct. Be true to yourself. Or you've got to go and hire a prostitute. Seriously, some psychiatrists have dangerously advised these are ways, be true to yourself, satisfy those physical desires. If it feels good, do it. A worldview that will cause absolute destruction in the life of people. See, the thing is, if if you've got an addiction, the worst thing you can do is feed your addiction. So are you being true to your physical self? If it feels good, I'll do it. Fact is, people who are true to their physical self end up being adulterers or thieves or worse, murderers. Because actually, the natural physical desires in your body, if you're honest with me, they aren't always pointing you in a healthy direction. So warning, don't be true to that self. Then there's also your soul. Now, what is your soul? Your soul, broadly defined, is your mind, your ability to think about things. Do I have that? Yeah, you do. Honestly, you can. Your mind, your will, and your emotions. How you feel about things. Your ability to make decisions and reason things through. So... Are you true to your soul? Is that what we're saying? Be true to yourself. Ah, be true to your soul. In other words, if I feel good about something, I'll do it. If I think it's right, I'll do it. If I've decided it, then I can do it. Well, Hitler was being true to his soul. He had absolute convictions. He was convinced in his mind about a certain way of doing things. But would you say, Hitler, be true to yourself? We would say he was deceived. Osama bin Laden... Very genuine man, very sincere man, but we believe sincerely wrong. Should he be true to himself? 
No. Now, they're very extreme examples, but let's apply this to us. Could it be that in many occasions, we like them, maybe not in such extreme ways, but we like them, there's a way that seems right to us, but it's not necessarily the right way. Could it be that we become convinced of things that aren't necessarily accurate or aren't necessarily true? As I said earlier, have you ever thought something that isn't true? Yeah, all the time. Are you, what, what, when we're saying being true to yourself, and to be, to be honest, when people say, ah, oh, you just got to be true to yourself, typically they're talking about this. Oh, I really feel this. I, I feel love for this person. Or I, I really, as far as I can make it out, this seems the right thing. Typically, this is what people are talking about. And this is very dangerous grounds. Because you, if you're honest, one day your emotions is like this, and next day your emotions is like this. Can you trust your emotions? No. Peter, can't even, can't even trust myself now. Well, there's a third part to you, and this is good news. You have a spirit. And that's your heart. It's the bit that really makes you you. According to the Bible, that part is the most important part. And you know what? You can be true to that part. That's the bit that should be the guiding force in your life. Your heart. Here's a quote from the little prince. It says, now... And now here is my secret, a very simple secret. It's only with the heart that one can see rightly. What is essential is invisible to the eye. And I believe that, that only with the heart one can see rightly. There is an accuracy that comes from deep in your psyche, in the area of your conscience, in the area of your knower, right down in your guts, that you just have not just an emotional instinct, not just a rational instinct, but deeper than that, you know. It's the kind of feeling you get when you are walking into your house and you know before you buy it, this is my home. It's a, it's a sensation you have when you meet your wife and you say, that's the one I'm going to be married to for the rest of my days. It just, it's got one big tick right on the inside. It's that thing when you fall in love, move into a house. It's, it's a sense we have when we bought this building up the road in Gorgie. We wouldn't have gone this far had we not been absolutely convinced. This is right. It ticks the box. Now, can we rationally figure it out? No. We ain't got the money for it. Or we didn't then. Are we basing it on rationale? No. Are we basing it on emotions? No. I don't feel excited about the prospect of having to raise thousands and thousands of pounds. We're basing it on truth. And truth witnessed to in our spirits. So you can be true to that self. But the Bible says in Proverbs 3 and verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In other words, don't be true to your understanding self because that's in a journey. That's based on your own little perspective of things. It might not be accurate. But trust in the Lord with all your heart. The important things come from here. You see, some people have a problem believing in God. And the reason they have a problem believing in God is they can't prove him. They come from a naturalistic worldview where everything must be provable. Well, you cannot take a sample of God and test him in a lab. So you're going to have to either believe him or not. You ain't going to be able to rationalize him. Now, you are able to argue intellectually for the existence of God. You can do that. But at the end of all the arguments, you're going to make a choice. And my advice is this. Don't make a choice based on this. Make a choice based on this. And be true to this. And you will find deep in your psyche a knowledge of God. I believe that. The Bible says it's there. 
The Bible says it's there in every human being. Even if some people think by being true to themselves they don't believe God is there and they've argued a case in their mind that no, there can't be a God there and they've rationalized this, I believe even in those atheists' case, in their heart, in their knower, in their spirit, in their conscience, in their psyche, there is absolute knowledge that there's a God there. So I don't feel I'm going to losing, losing an argument with an atheist. I feel he's doing an incredibly impressive job of holding on to uh, a non-truth in his head. But he knows if he listens to his heart that what I'm saying is true. There is a God. Faith sits right with the heart. At the close of the Romanian Revolution, a missionary went in Romania. And, it was, and this is what they wrote in their, their diary. On January the 1st, 1990, I entered Romania during the closing day of the revolution. Exactly one week earlier, Nicolae Ceausescu, the God-hating dictator of Romania, had been assassinated. Ceausescu had persecuted Christians severely. From preschool to postgraduate university, everyone had been taught that God did not exist. Yet as I walked through the streets of Romania in those closing days of the revolution, people would gather around me and began to shout, Existe Dumines, Existe Dumines, which means there is God, there is a God. People, an awareness had come. To be honest, a liberty had come to be true to their true self. They had been taught to believe there was no God, but deep in their psyche was a knowledge of God. And I, I, I do believe that you can be true to that self. So be true to your heart. Secondly, I want to suggest to you that we need to have experts that we can follow. Which expert will you follow? Most of us are influenced greatly by what other people think. 99% of people on the way they see this world, they got that worldview from someone. 99% of atheists, their opinions are not original. They've read books, uh, they've read stuff from other people and embraced opinions others had. Most of us are like that, whether we call ourselves Christian or not. Our opinions are passed on. The question is this, the people who have these opinions that we're believing, are they accurate? You see, if you go to a GP, you would expect the GP to give you an accurate diagnosis of your body. He's, he's an expert in that field, and he will say, this is what's wrong in your body, and here's how you can fix it. You trust that expert, yeah? Or if you go and get your car fixed, you go to the mechanic and say, Mr. Mechanic, can you fix, or, or Mrs. Mechanic, okay, um, can you fix my car? And she will say, yes. Yes, I can. Yes, yes. And um, so, so Mr. Mr. Mechanic will, will say, this is what's wrong in your car. This is how you can fix it. This is how you put it right. Do you trust the expert opinion? Well, I would trust him. No, sorry. Yeah, yeah, of course. Him or her, I, I would trust. Why? Because they are an expert in a field that I'm an expert. I'll just take the word for it. Okay? Now listen, the fact is, if they've made a wrong diagnosis, that could be dangerous. If they've made a wrong diagnosis of the problem in my car, it's not so dangerous. If it's a GP and he makes a wrong diagnosis, like, uh, oh, you've just got a headache. And like, it's not a headache, you're about to die, right? It's not like you just need an aspirin. You need a heart-brain replacement or something, right? 
and they totally misdiagnose it. You need a new brain and a new heart and new lungs. And like, but you told me it was a headache. You know, it gets totally wrong, right? You place your trust in the experts. The experts tell you something and you totally trust what they're going to say because they're an expert in a field, of course. But if they get it wrong, serious danger. There is a way that seems right to man, but its end leads to death. It could be that people who we see as experts, if they haven't got it right, and they, like us, are subject to being deluded, getting things wrong, then we've trusted the wrong expert. We could be in for the chop. We took a paracetamol, but we needed a new brain. Experts say stuff that they desire to be true. This is the whole desire and truth dilemma. Remember the, uh, the lassie who, who fancied the guy who was a loser? Her, her desire overrid her sense of reality and truth. Same can happen with experts. Now, we do trust experts. I don't, I don't mean that. But there are certain times experts get it wrong. For example, the Enron scandal. S- scandal. <laughs> Not the sc- Enron scandal. The Enron thing. The weird Enron thing that were reported on in the news. Well, what happened there was this, that these guys, these experts, were coming up with rumors of truths, but they weren't truths. And everything went down big style, and they went down with it. We see, uh, I was chatting to Ken the other day there, and Ken was telling me that the, the commercial property market is now struggling. And what had been happening for a few years leading up to this was that surveyors, valuers, were valuing property higher than it actually was to keep the market buoyant. But it wasn't truth. It was an illusion of truth. And now they're realizing actually the market wasn't as buoyant as it was and people are starting to get cold feet when it comes to buying commercial property. And now it's a, it's a buyer's market rather than a seller's market. So truth, the experts portray, isn't, that isn't even a good gauge of truth. You need to know you can trust your expert to believe their truth. You would hope the experts would know what they're talking about. Now that's the case with physical things. How much more important spiritual things? Are there spiritual experts that we are taking our lead from? My brother-in-law Tim, he seemed like an expert. He grew up in that area. I was going to say in that forest. Now he, he was reared by wolves in the forest. He ate chestnuts and bathed in mud pools. That would make sense actually. Okay. Anyway. Tim, Tim was, he grew up and that was his home territory. He played in those woods. He, he knew that place like the back of his hand. He was meant to be an expert and yet even he got it wrong. What expert can you trust? Proverbs 12 and 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. What counsel are you listening to? What wisdom can you gain from the right expert? And here's my suggestion. I'm going to promote one expert you can totally trust. Daniel. Okay, not Daniel. He's a nice guy. But Jesus Christ. He's the expert you can trust. And here's here's why I would say that. Because you and I, when we were born, we began. We had a beginning. Therefore, everything we're expert about is to do with what the knowledge we've gained since we were born. You know, I can talk to you about walking and how to eat and things I've learned since I was born. But Jesus can talk to you about a lot more than that. Because Jesus existed before birth. 
The Bible says about Jesus in Philippians 2 verses 5 to 10. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. Who being in very nature God. Did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But made himself nothing. And taking on the very, very nature of a servant. Jesus was born. But he existed before birth. And being made in human likeness. And being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself. And became obedient to death. Even death, death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place. And gave him the name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus every knee would bow. In heaven and on earth. And under the earth. Jesus existed before birth. A pre-existed birth. You and I didn't. His framework of reference is wider than ours. He understands things from a totally different perspective. God knows things that we don't. John 13 verse 3 confirms this same fact. Jesus, referring to Jesus, says Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Jesus existed before birth and will exist beyond. You and I just were born. That was us started. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 echoes this exactly the same theme. This is a prophecy that we often hear read at Christmas time talking about the birth of Jesus. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. And Jesus was born as a child. So in one sense, his physical earthly existence began at a point. But the Bible doesn't just say a child was born to us. It said a son is given. That God the Son, who always has been and always will be, entered into human history at that point. He, I believe, is the expert we can trust about life. God knows what life's all about. My dad's some guy. He's 80 now. And he's pretty old school. Um, really cool guy, but we old school. And what happens is you give him a technical thing for Christmas. Go, oh, thank you very much. Thank you. What is it? Oh, it's a microwave, Dad. You can, you can heat food up in it and press buttons and it'll make things quickly instead of using an oven. Oh, right, cool. Thank you. Great. I've always wanted one of them. And he'll put it in his shelf. And honestly, he'll put it in his shelf and he won't use it. That's crazy. He won't use it. And like, next Christmas will come and we'll be around his house. I say, hey, have you used, how's it going on with the microwave from last Christmas? Sorry, son, I haven't used it. Maybe you could show me how to use it and then I'll be fine with it. Okay, sure, Dad. So I'll go around and I'll help him how to use it. You know, believe it or not, this happened with a chopping board as well. Seriously. We bought, I bought him this nice thing from Habitat, a really cool looking wooden chopping board. And it sat in his kitchen for ages. And it was just like he was paranoid to use it. I guess he didn't want to cut on his new chopping board. So when I said, Dad, watch this, I got a carrot. Boom. Scored it. Christens. There you go. You know, the point was this, that he needed, he needed the son to turn up and show us how it's done. And Jesus Christ, the son, is our expert on life. He is the one that we can truly trust. He is the expert when it comes to things eternal. He is the expert that you can trust. He is credible. Well, how do you know what Jesus said about stuff? How do you know that what Jesus said was actually what was written in the Bible? How do you know that wasn't just Christians coming up with what they thought Jesus would like to have said, but it wasn't really what Jesus said? You skeptic. Okay, here the, I'll give it to you then. 
the New Testament is unbelievably accurate. It has undergone more scrutiny than any other historic text. It is widely acknowledged by scholars and historians that the New Testament is probably the most accurate historic document we have in existence. All other historic documents, first of all, have not gone under the same scrutiny that this, the, the New Testament has. People have put it under scrutiny because they wanted to disprove it, but have failed. It has passed the test. It has passed the scrutiny. And it stands alone as a piece of literature with thousands upon thousands of copies dating back to the, the shortly years after the actual happenings. We believe we can, you can totally trust the scholarly accuracy and the historic record of the New Testament. If you want to look into that, there's plenty to be read about that. There's plenty of credible uh, things written by credible people talking about the historical accuracy of the Bible. You can trust that. Jesus made radical claims that would, be, that would agree with secular history of the time, where secular history recorded a man called Jesus. Secular history recorded some of the miracles that the Gospels recorded. Secular history that had no Christian agenda, uh, just simply recording the history of the time, recorded the death of Jesus Christ. And it also recorded that his disciples, dating not, not, not some inherited thing that they made up years after, but right back to the point when Jesus existed, that secular history will record that the disciples believed he was resurrected. Actually, secular history concurs with the Gospels. Actually, the Gospels are just history. They're just history literature, recording the events of the day. And Jesus made some radical claims, and here's the biggest claim. Here's one of the biggest. John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus, see, when, when it comes to truth, I believe Jesus is the ultimate gauge of truth. He tells us he's not only going to tell us truth, but Jesus said he himself is the truth. He's the expert I believe you can trust. In a world that's so wishy-washy, so unclear, Jesus stands apart in a world of shades of grey, and he says, black and white, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You want to come to the Father? You come through me. You want to connect with God? I'm the one who can connect you. Come through me. And Jesus gives us absolute confidence. Here's some evidence as to say why I believe that Jesus had the credentials to say such a radical statement. I believe Jesus could say that because if you look at the fruit of Jesus' life, it gives him credibility to say such things. You look at the aid organizations that have been birthed through the motivation of Jesus. You look at the healthcare systems and the legal system and the education system and human rights, beliefs on human rights, things like this that have been totally birthed and based completely on the teachings of Jesus Christ. The fruit is uncomparable. You look at the effect his life has had on the world. Almost one third of our world's population would believe in him. A huge percentage of our world population would say that Jesus isn't just dead, but he indeed is alive. And that he has got every right to say such things. Here's another reason you can believe in him. He said stuff that was totally contrary to every other worldview. Does that make us believe in him? Yeah. He gave us a worldview that goes like this. We're all wicked to the core. I want to tell you, no human being would come up with that. <laughs> I know, I'll come up with a worldview 
that portrays everyone as evil. Everyone will really like that. If you had a negative agenda, you would not have come up with that one. <laughs> Only God could have come up with one like that. And the worldview that Jesus promotes isn't that human beings are fundamentally nice people and we're just going to, make, we're just going to improve ourselves a little bit. Jesus' worldview is this. We're all sinners. We're all fundamentally evil. We've all got it wrong. And we need God's forgiveness. Only God would have come up with a worldview like that. You see, for Jesus to say the things he said, he would either have been mad, evil, or exactly who he said he was. For Jesus to say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, he was either mad, evil, or true. He would be mad if he was saying such things and he was kind of deluded and full of himself and not really in touch with reality. That would make him mad. Like He's saying things, but he's deluded. He needs to be locked up in a mental asylum. Totally deluded. Well, let me ask you, would a deluded person, would his words motivate mil- literally millions, in fact billions of people, to make a good difference on the earth for the good? To start aid organizations, to help the poor and the needy, to start educational systems, to start healthcare free for all, to stand up for human rights? Would someone who was so deluded, would their teachings carry that weight that would motivate millions and billions to make that kind of positive impact in our world? I don't think so. Would someone who was fundamentally evil, now Jesus saying the things he said, if he knew they were not true, but he said them anyway, that would make him a deceiver. That means he is evil. Would someone who is evil bear such good fruit on planet earth? And our very UK legal system, which is based on the teachings of Jesus, that provides stability in our culture and fights against evil. I don't think that's the fruit of an evil man. The only conclusion, the only conclusion I can logically come to, folks, and it's the one that my heart witnesses to, is that Jesus is who he says he was. He is indeed the way, the truth, and the life. He's the expert that you and I can trust. He's the one that we can trust. His worldview is diametrically opposed to every other worldview. He doesn't just propose some way of self-improvement. He says we're fundamentally wicked and he went on to do something about it because he was fundamentally good. And the truth we believe is that when Jesus lived this life, he lived sin free. Muslims even would concur with that. They would say, indeed, Jesus was sinless man. No sin. Muhammad wouldn't say that about himself. If you read history, you'll see that that certainly was not the case about Muhammad. But the Muslim faith would even believe that Jesus was sin free. We believe Jesus was sin free. At the end of his life, he was not dying as a sinner. He was dying for sinners. He paid the price. He, he took the punishment for all the wickedness on planet Earth so that we wouldn't need to take that punishment. Way back when the pioneers, early pioneers, were working away across the central states of America in the wilderness, in the bush, in the scrub, hot desert, they were traveling in convoy, in, in kind of horses and carriages, and they had been going many days since they last saw any river or any water. And here to their horror on the horizon was a bushfire. It was raging and it was coming rapidly towards them. They knew that the bushfire was traveling faster than they could travel. They also knew that a river was two days back that way. And if they tried to get to the river, the bushfire would catch them before they got there. They, they realized they were facing the realities of death. But then the leader of that particular group of pioneers said, this is what we do. 
And he started his own fire. And he set a fire to the land right beside him. And then after that fire had passed, he said, now everyone get onto that land. And one of the kids in the convoy said, the fire's coming, we're going to get burnt, we're going to get burnt. But the leader says, the fire cannot burn where the fire has already been. And they stood in the burnt bit of land as the bushfire passed them by. They were safe. The fire had already been there. And the truth is, when Jesus died on that cross, he paid the price once and for all. No other price needs to be paid. It is a tragedy, absolute tragedy, that human beings who don't know Jesus, who haven't accepted what he did for them, will die and pay the price for their own sins because they don't need to. They don't need to. God's poured out his wrath on Jesus so that he wouldn't pour it out on you and I. In the short poem it says, On him almighty vengeance fell, which would have sunk a world to hell. He bore it for a chosen race and thus becomes our hiding place. Put your life into Jesus because Jesus has already taken your judgment. He's the only one who ever could. He's the, he's the one with the credentials to say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Because he's the one who hadn't sinned in his life, unlike us. And he paid the price so that in him, we're safe. And we can put our life in him. And he's already taken the judgment, so it will not touch your life. More than 1900 years ago, there was a man born contrary to the laws of life. This man lived in poverty and was reared in obscurity. He did not travel extensively. Only once did he cross the boundary of a country in which he'd lived, of the country in which he'd lived, and that was during his exile and childhood. He possessed neither wealth nor influence. His relatives were inconspicuous. He'd neither training nor formal education. In infancy, he startled a king. In childhood, he puzzled doctors. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature, walking on the billows of the waves as if pavements, and he hushed the sea to sleep. He healed the multitudes without medicine and made no charge for his service. He never wrote a book, yet all the libraries of the country that we're living in could not hold the books that have been written about him. He never wrote a song, yet he has furnished the theme for more songs than all the songwriters combined. He never founded a college, and all the schools put together could not boast of having so many students as he. He never marshaled an army, nor drafted a soldier, nor fired a gun, And yet no leader has ever had more volunteers who have, under his orders, made more rebels stack up their arms and surrender without a shot, being fired. He never practiced psychiatry, yet he's healed more broken hearts than all the doctors far and near. Once each year the wheels of commerce cease, they're turning, and the multitudes wend their way to worship in assemblies and pay homage and respect to him. The name is passed proud statesmen of Greece and Rome have come and gone the names of past scientists philosophers and theologians have come and gone but this man's name abounds more and more and though time has spread 2000 years between the people of his generation and now and the scene of his crucifixion and now he still lives Herod could not destroy him the grave could not hold him he stands forth in the highest pinnacle of heavenly glory, proclaimed of God, acknowledged by angels, adorned by the, adored by the saints, and feared by the devils, as a living personal Christ, our Lord and Saviour.
I want to propose to you that Jesus alone is the expert we can trust in a world where we're not so sure. Sometimes we can't even trust our own way because we're so caught up with our emotions. We're so caught up with potentially our own deceptions, our own deludedness sometimes. But if you listen to your heart where you can trust and as you follow Jesus who you can trust, you can get your way through this world and the way you live will not end in death. The way you live will lead to life. Ultimately, it's not about being true to yourself. It's about being true to him. That's our calling. It says in Proverbs 21 and verse 2, and I end with this verse, Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. It's not about being true to yourself. It's about being true to him. It's not about whether you feel good about your life or not. The challenging thought is, it's about, are you pleasing God? It's about, are you living for the eternal things, not just for the temporal things? It's about, are you living a life that's for his honor and for his sake, rather than for your own honor and your own sake? That's the challenge in life. That's the high life. And one day, you're going to stand before him. So I want to prepare you for that moment. I want to pay to live a life that's not just full of your own illusions. Some may be true, some may be false. But you can have something more sure. Follow the expert, the one with the credentials to show us what life is really about. And at the end of it, when you stand before him, you weren't living for self, you were living for his honor. By his grace, because of his death on that cross, you can have an eternity in his presence. And you can have had lived a life full of wisdom on planet earth with the right worldview and an accurate way of living. Let's pray.